Hello, my dudes. My name is Alex, and this is the Thousand Movie Project podcast. Today, I'm talking with a friend of mine, Steve Donahue. He's also a book critic who has written in a million different places. He's published in the Washington Post, the Boston Globe, the Wall Street Journal, Christian Science Monitor. Uh, he's the founding editor of Open Letters Monthly, which is now in a new shape on OpenLettersReview.com, where he publishes a book review or two every day. He's also, I think, the first... Booktuber, Booktube, incidentally, is sort of the book discussion corner of YouTube. He, uh, being on the channel for only, I think, two years now, is probably the most prolific in its history. How many videos do you have? Oh, it's a lot. Eleven <laughs> hundred. It's a lot. It's eleven hundred. More than that. It's a. Yeah. Uh, it's a lot. Okay, and and still being freshly new. And do do you know for sure? Do you have more videos than every other booktuber? Like even the mega stars, where it's they have like three hundred thousand subscribers. I don't know for sure. I think I do, uh, but it's like I said on, in one of my videos, I'm not 100% sure of a 1,000 videos, but I'm definitely sure of 2,000 videos. <laughs> there are hardly any people on BookTube, on YouTube, much less BookTube, who've done 2,000 videos. So when I hit 2,000, I'll feel free to pop the champagne. Um, 1,000, I'm not completely sure. There are some people who've been on BookTube since its beginning. Right. I, they, I guess they could, although I don't think so. I'd be willing to bet that even the people who've been on BookTube for seven years have at most 500 videos. <laughs> but I could, I could be wrong. So uh, a couple nights ago, we went through a trial run with this sort of going through, trying to use the software that I've downloaded in order to sort of record the Skype conversations. I pared it down, but it was still a big mess. We didn't have any real real train <laughs> of thought. Uh, we weren't following a particular course of, course of conversation. I've got some ideas as to stuff I kind of just want to prompt you to riff on today, um, but uh, stuff to which I can contribute a little yeah, make bit. A good impression too, because I I want to make a good enough impression so that your listeners want me back. <laughs> oh, I think I think much like YouTube, I'm, they're just going to be subjected to you. <laughs> oh, this is so this is an autocracy. You'll just do it <laughs> exactly. Uh, one of the things that's been really interest uh, that's really hooked my interest lately, and, and we touched upon it the other night. We were talking about Darkest Hour, which you didn't like, and um, you're, you're sort of coming to it as a certain kind of viewer because you're, you have so much interest in Churchill as a historical figure. Um, I, I recently bought and read, adored, and we discussed uh, My Lunches with Orson by yes. a guy I think named Harry Jaglow, Jaglow or Jaglob. But um, anyways, he had a number of lunches with Orson Welles in the 1980s, asked Orson if he could record them. Welles said, yes, so long as the tape recorder is out of my sight. And so it does seem that Welles forgets that he's being recorded at times, which is nice. Um, I'm currently reading um, Nearing the End, after a, it's been a long slog, um, even though I'm enjoying it, of the first volume of Simon Callow's four-part biography of Welles. Um, I, yeah, I just learned it actually the other day that volume four is coming out as quickly as 2019. So I was thinking of Orson Welles, and also I was just writing something about Alfred Hitchcock uh, for ThousandMovieProject.com earlier in the year. No, er, er, in 2017, I read uh, Donald Spotto's big biography of Alfred Hitchcock, and um, these three figures, Welles, Hitchcock, Churchill, they well, one of the things they have in common is that they were all enormous uh, physically, but uh, they also had huge reputations, huge personalities, and they were guys whose personalities kind of eclipsed their work um, or cast huge shadows. And I just, as of late, and I, I don't know what it is, I've just become really interested. And I actually asked you for recommendations on such characters a while ago. I don't know if you remember. Just these massive figures, whether in Hollywood or not. Um, do you know the kind of person I'm talking about? Like the great raconteur, the cigar-chomping, belly-laughing, um, like a... Uh, 
Carrie Fisher was reminiscing on John Belushi uh, a couple of years ago and saying he was a guy of just enormous appetites, whether it was drugs, alcohol, food, uh, you know, binge-watching things, uh, out, whatever. I'm stammering because it's not a totally form. I, I don't quite understand why I'm so interested in these figures, but... I do indeed know the kind of figure you're talking about. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Although, uh, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that the, the key three people that you started off talking about... Uh, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that uh, <laughs> that Vertigo, Citizen Kane, and defeating the Nazis are not <laughs> by, by their personalities. I, I know what you meant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm still going to hold that. <laughs> yes, I, I know what you mean. I've known I've known people like that. Uh, although I, I I I have to I have to quibble with one of your readings there. Sure. I, it could, you could very well be right. But I don't think you are. I don't think there's any force in the world or in any worlds beyond. No God from Olympus. I don't think there's anything that could ever have made Orson Welles forget there was a tape recorder in the <laughs> One of the things that had prompted me to look back at um, Hitchcock in a certain way was I just saw Notorious for the first time, which also... Oh, wow. Usually whenever I hear about like the movies in which Hitchcock is exploring really deep sexual stuff, it's Rear Window, it's Vertigo, um, Psycho. But Notorious seems to have it, and um, when I was doing research on it to see if other people felt the same way, I, I came up on, on some essays uh, and blog posts saying you shouldn't project all this stuff. You shouldn't be looking at an artist's work this way. Just try to take it for what it is, etc. And now in the wake of the Quentin Tarantino thing with Uma Thurman, have you been reading about this? I have. Yeah. Um, and now people saying that... So he, he had Uma Thurman drive that car and Kill Bill 2. She had a car accident on the set and almost killed her. And the movie he made immediately after that was Death Proof, about a man who gets sexual gratification by killing women with his car. And, um, yeah, and then in reading about that, coincidentally, someone else mentioned, we're now looking at Tarantino's movies the way we look at Hitchcock's movies, which is, it's all, Tarantino himself is sort of the thing we're studying, not the story not anything, you know, not the sort of filmic qualities. We're looking for the perversion. We're looking for the deviancy. We're looking for the megalomania. I don't think it's there to find in either one's work. No. <laughs> Which I guess puts me in the tiny minority. Oh, no? Yeah. <laughs> no, I have never, I've never seen even, anything, even the slightest bit sexually suggestive in anything by Hitchcock. <laughs> really? <laughs> no, no, not at all. Oh, man. Even if <laughs> when people say, oh, you know, look at the sexual undercurrents in Psycho, I'm just baffled. Just completely baffled, and that doesn't happen to me often. <laughs> <laughs> and the same thing with Tarantino. He he, his movies are so edgy, and he himself projects in interviews that he's so edgy, and it all seems to me just so utterly virginal. <laughs> really? I don't believe it. I don't believe there's anything there at all. I think the reason that he put Uma Thurman in that car is because he's an a-hole. And I think the reason that he made the next movie the way he did is because he has no imagination. <laughs> so it's just the latest thing on his mind. The the, the things that he tried, I get. I know that I'm that I'm bucking here all the dude bros. But <laughs> anyone who can look at Pulp Fiction and see anything sexy, much less sexual, <laughs> I I I just don't know what that says about their post high school careers <laughs> uh, I, there's just nothing there at all the slightest 
one-page diary entry written by John Travolta would have more sexual charge to it than anything Tarantino's ever done. <laughs> I'm in the minority there. I think this is an, an utterly arrested eight-year-old with, with all the, the bloody-minded narcissism of an eight-year-old and all the complete lack of interest of an eight-year-old. With an eight-year-old, you... An eight-year-old boy is just a, a damaged psychotic who isn't big <laughs> enough. The, the, uh, and, and when you meet an eight-year-old boy and he looks at you in that, that kind of Steven Spielberg bad kid way and he gets all still, not because he's actually contemplative, but because he has learned in some lizard-like fashion that going all still creeps out adults. And then he starts talking, and you realize, oh, my God, this, this eight-year-old is like every other eight-year-old I've ever met. He's just full of frothing homicidal rage. <laughs> and then he sort of runs away and does something else, and you completely forget about him because it's one note, and that's all it is. It's just that all eight-year-olds are that way. And I think that's what Tarantino is. I mean, I've never seen anything in any movie of his that, that, I, that is anything other than that. But if you were somehow able to open up the head of an eight-year-old, an actual eight-year-old, and stuff in a bunch of real-world knowledge and then give him a movie budget, this is what you'd get. <laughs> I, I'm, in the, I'm in the vast minority there. There are whole school, film school courses on Tarantino. So yes. Well, um, in suggesting earlier that maybe um, part of what seems, as you put it, so virginal about his work is its effort to seem edgy and his effort to seem edgy. And... Um, for uh, not not for the project yet, although it is on the Thousand Movie Project list, I watched um, Pasolini's 120 Days of Sodom, uh, which is also trying to shock and trying to be edgy. Um, do you, does that strike you in a weird way as kind of virginal, like an adolescence upset, like oh let's gross them out with poop or no, no? I think you can see it, it, it's it's maladroit, but it's not maladroit in the same way. With, with Pasolini, it's not that it, it, I'm an eight-year-old and I can say whatever I want, so I'm just going to scandalize everybody. But it's all going to be primary colors and kind of dumb. <laughs> with, with Pasolini, it's this will shock the American. <laughs> <laughs> Which is annoying in its own way. <laughs> You're the one who has to study this stuff. <laughs> yeah. But I get to stick to books. Yeah, I, I get so self-conscious though, wondering if I'm bringing you know the right sensibility to the to the table, and I'm looking at these movies the right way. Um, but that's growing as you go along in the project, right? Yeah, I, I hope so. I like to think so. See, I just have to keep abreast of this stuff uh, for books, right? And and so far, 2018 seems uh, conspicuously empty of major uh, entertainment industry books of any kind. Very few major biographies, very few uh, major studies that I can see. Maybe I'm just not seeing them. I haven't seen any coming down the pike. <laughs> uh, yeah, the, that thing, what you mentioned about growing as I'm going through the project and um, questioning whether I'm looking at things the right way, I'm no, I was surprised to find that um, the frequency with which you digress into totally confident rants on your YouTube channel Nonetheless, whenever you get, like, you'll often get a galley copy of a book, like an uncorrected proof, and then a couple months later you'll get the finished copy in hardback. And you very often say, I read the uncorrected galley, it didn't do anything for me, but something about it, it has been echoing in your head for the ensuing months. And you're like, I'm going to give it a shot, another shot, because maybe I wasn't in the right headspace, maybe I wasn't in such a mood that was giving this guy the benefit of the doubt. Um, yes. 
I was surprised by the frequency because you always sound so confident when you when you lay out your opinions, and you are obviously well read. You tend to know what you're talking about when you do opine about something, and yet you do in a very I don't know unself conscious way express self doubt on a pretty regular basis, and it's but it's like a charitable self doubt. It's I'm going to give this person another chance. Yeah, I, I, I am always 100% sure of what I think, but I'm perfectly willing to rethink it. But but uh, despite the fact that that happens often on my BookTube channel, it doesn't happen often in real life. Oh, no. extent <laughs> that real life is different from BookTube. Uh, I would say that of all the books I read, it's only about maybe outside 30% that I finish and... And little, a little later on, I'm having that little nagging feeling in the back of my mind. Oh, there might have been more to that. That's a, it's a, it's a small percentage. It's far less than half. Like, uh, I just, I just read a big fat fantasy novel, an author's debut fantasy novel. Relatively standard stuff, low key magic system, uh, quasi renaissance backdrop, uh, one dimensional characters that have epiphanies and become two dimensional. <laughs> that sort of thing. And, and, there's no chance on earth that I will reread it. And then, <laughs> there's no chance on earth that I will be called to reread it in my mind. There's just no way. I just read, I just read, uh, a murder mystery, uh, set in ancient Rome by an author who's done a whole thing of murder mysteries set in ancient Rome. And he, I think, is winding up that part of his writing career. I don't think he wants to do books set in ancient Rome anymore. Uh, and, so, and if I'm right about that, he decided to do, to wrap up his mystery series set in ancient Rome, uh, by the biggest murder of them all, because <laughs> the book is about the murder of Julius Caesar, which is hardly a mystery. <laughs> kind of, uh, kind of front page news from the very <laughs> beginning. Uh, and I read it, and I know this author's work very well, and I've, I've known it from his very first book. I followed it in detail, know all the characters, major and minor. And I read the book, and I saw what he was doing, and, you know, I saw where he was going, and then I saw how he pulled it off. And I appreciated it. I liked it. I could recommend it to people, but I'd never, I'll never read it again. <laughs> well, there'd be absolutely no reason to read it again. Whereas, for instance, uh, Paul Auster, his, his enormous novel, 4321, which I read in galley form and hated, <laughs> and then I read it again in finished copy and hated it, and for all the same reasons. The, the meter didn't move at all. Uh, and I just recently got the paperback, and that is the thing where I will probably read it again. Uh, because little bits and pieces of it nag at me, and also, I admit, because uh, the consensus among critics who I really like was considerably more positive than mine. Right. So. That that leads me to think maybe I missed something. <laughs> I, I don't know. Which is but, a huge, but that's a, and that's a huge reconsideration because four three two one is what nine hundred pages, eight hundred. Yeah, it's a big book. And and, yeah. and you're and you're giving it chance after chance. But that what you're mentioning where um you know you you know it's by the numbers you're, you're getting into the big fantasy novel or the big mystery novel and it's by the numbers you can appreciate its execution and you you digest it it's fine you move on. But a while ago. I had I had just cracked Gone with the Wind for the first time shortly after seeing the movie for the first time, and I was telling you I was riveted. I was on I'd, like three days later I was on page four hundred. I was zipping through it, and um, and you were like you you were saying um, it's not a good novel, but if there is such a thing as book magic, that book has it. That there's something 
that you can't put your finger on it, or maybe you can. I don't know. You um, must have felt it, right? Yeah, I wasn't yeah, and I, I and I think that it. about about The Godfather and The Exorcist, um, and you, we oh, were just the movies. No, the books. Oh, the books. And um, <laughs> okay, you, I never saw any magic in either The Godfather or The Exorcist. <laughs> oh no, no, I find something hypnotic in both of them. I haven't read Jaws. You were just talking about that the other night, and what a great book that is, and and the novelization of the sequel, Jaws Two. It's the novel, Jaws Two. <laughs> one, of, one of my forlorn things, the things that I can never, I will never be able to amass enough credit as a critic to get anybody to take my word for it. <laughs> to put it back in print or something? No, no, just to read it. Even if I send them a, a used copy. I have, I've, I've had it happen over the years where people will say, oh, no, honey, I love reading your reviews, but I'm not going to read this. <laughs> I don't know what to tell them. I mean, it's, it's the novelization of Jaws 2. So I understand. <laughs> Nevertheless, really good. But yeah, Gone with the Wind is just—it's just really, really strange. It's—it's it's the literary equivalent of being trapped in Mrs. Havisham's parlor. You're just choking in perfume and sentiment, but, but you, you don't want to leave. Uh, the, no, the hardest thing about Gone with the Wind isn't—I can recommend it to people. I can honestly recommend it to people. Some people in the right frame of mind, if they're looking for the right kind of book, the hardest thing in the world with Gone with the Wind is it's it's small but dedicated Cardro fans who say that he's good. <laughs> Tell them no. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm willing to give it all the credit in the world, but I'm not it's not good. <laughs> I'm sorry, I just made a video about it. I was trying to make a point. And the comments have been rebelling against me. Nobody, and also the, the emails and texts I've been getting is just rebelling against the idea that you can re evaluate a book objectively. I forget where I was just reading this, but uh, someone was was talking about um, how books change with time and how how the how the readership changes with time. And someone alluded to Gone with the Wind, and that at the time of its release, maybe up through the '60s, it was considered a serious good book that adults very much enjoyed. Whereas now, it's kind of considered sort of just an ambitious read for a teenager. Yes. Some, something that might only appeal to a teenager. Yes, I'd agree with that. I, I, I might, I might, I might recommend it to a teenager of a certain, a certain kind of teenager. Right. But then again, what about the movie? I think it's great. Yeah, I mean, it's. I think it's hair whiteningly <laughs> as hair whiteningly good as it is, as it was in 1939. Um, I, I, I hear all. I heard that. Um, Apparently, the reason they don't adjust um, box office figures for inflation when saying, like, this is the highest grossing movie of all time is because there's no chance of anything ever beating Gone with the Wind, which earned the equivalent of uh, about $3 billion. I also read somewhere that, like, uh, at the peak of the Great Depression, you could get into uh, a lot of movie theaters by donating canned food, like you didn't have to buy a ticket. Uh, no kidding. Yeah, but, but Gone with the Wind came out in 39, so pretty much the end of the... Of the Great Depression, although I imagine people were suffering from it well into the 40s. <laughs> uh, Do you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, 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 that's that's broad-minded of you. <laughs> uh, so you're willing to go out on a limb and think that people might still have been suffering from the Great Depression? I think so. I think so. Oh, well, that's that's, that's <laughs> amazing. The almost total collapse of the global economy, and then a year later. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah, got it. Okay. <laughs> um, history in the American history classes I've taken, they make the uh, American the economic boom of World War II seem like a really dramatic, immediate spike. Was that the case? Well, not immediate. 
because we were doing a lot for for Britain before war was declared. But but if you delve into, as I have been known to do, <laughs> conspiracy theorist groups, uh, the number one theory, first of all, they they don't even want to listen to you if you think that the U.S. was caught by surprise at Pearl Harbor. <laughs> they didn't want to hear that. Now, of course, FDR knew. Uh, and the number one reason they give for why he knew and did nothing was to jumpstart the economy. Yeah, Vidal, Gore Vidal was a big proponent of that. Would yes. roll his eyes, at, you know. Do you believe that? That that particular, as you call it, crackpot conspiracy theory? No. Okay. <laughs> what was the one that I was surprised to hear you say? Oh, the Reagan shooting. I was surprised I, to hear you say in one of your videos that there there is some legitimacy maybe to the crackpot conspiracy theories surrounding the Reagan shooting, that e- even in the most comprehensive narratives about what happened, um, there, there are holes. Yes, big holes. Which I didn't I didn't think anything of at the time. I didn't I didn't I didn't care. It seemed fairly straightforward to me. But there was there was once upon a time in conspiracy circles a genuine good man. Not not good comparatively speaking, not intelligent, you know, on a scale, but a genuinely good, decent, funny, incredibly smart man named John Judge. And he believed and made a case, and I, I couldn't poke holes in it. <laughs> I couldn't poke holes in a lot of it. Uh, so I, I've, just sort of, I've just sort of gone with it since then and noticed that uh, no one in, in books about it pays it any mind. That's another, another sure sign that I always look for in conspiracy theories is whether or not the, the so to speak, catechism histories give any weight to the inconsistencies at all. If they brush them over completely, then that bugs me. <laughs> that really bugs me. <laughs> and in the in the case of the Reagan shooting, the, the ballistics are against you. The ear witness and eyewitness testimony is against you. Uh, and the circumstantial evidence surrounding the purported would-be assassin is hysterically damning. <laughs> we don't know what to make about any of it. <laughs> I mean, the, the the Bush family is connected to the Hinckley family. The vice president's brother was scheduled to have supper with the assassin's brother the day of the assassination. <laughs> what do you think they were going to talk about? <laughs> the ballistics are all wrong. They, they, they don't match. We, I mean, we have the damage to the car. We have the damage to the Secret Service agent. We have the damage to the president doesn't match with where with where everyone says with where the experts say Hinckley was supposed to be. The, not, none of that makes any sense. I mean, a, a shot strikes Reagan's biggest Secret Service agent uh, right in his midriff, like an almost an almost lethal shot that that hit him so close and and straight on that it lifted him off his feet. And if you look at the video, you can see that you can see him being lifted off his feet. But Hinckley was supposed to be up on. An, embank- an embankment over overlooking, looking down at the door of the hotel. So, how is that possible? <laughs> it just, it just flat out isn't possible. And you know, then there's all the other stuff, all the bells and whistles that conspiracy theorists people love, like the fact that the president had to walk to his car at all. Why was that? I mean, you've seen the footage, right? Same as I have. He's walking down the sidewalk to get to his car. Why is that? Why wasn't it at? Why wasn't it uh, at the entrance? It wasn't at the entrance. 
There's film footage of him getting there. The car drops him off at the door. And then there's film footage of him leaving, and the car is nowhere near the door. And it's not like there was a big crowd. It's just he has to go for a walk. He has to walk to get to his ride. That's unexplained <laughs> and inexplicable. It's certainly not Secret Service procedure. So <laughs> uh, that, sort of, that sort of stuff I just love. You made an um, interesting point recently. You were telling me about um, the the library shelves full of uh, books uh, trying to, well, questioning uh, Shakespeare's authorship. And you did. said that, yeah, you said that one of the uh, interesting things in approaching that argument, one of the rhetorical strategies um, that the conspiracy theorist has to keep in mind is that you can you can do one of two things, but you can't do both. You can either say that he did write them or you can say that he didn't. But if you say that he didn't, you should stop there. And, and no, try to... no conspiracy theorist ever does. It's the easiest thing in the world to write a book saying he didn't write them and here's who did. But that's what derails them all. <laughs> that's what derails every one of them, because there's no ideal candidate. And all the, all the, the candidates that have been put forward, hundreds of candidates that have been put forward, all have deadly arguments against them. Arguments that just, that ends the discussion. The foremost, of course, being that so-and-so was dead. <laughs> you, you, you'd think that would end the discussion, but Shakespearean authorship people are nothing if not stubborn, and they just invent, you know, a coin locker in Grand Central Station where so where the Earl of Oxford put 80 million plays, <laughs> and then no one would know or take responsibility themselves, and it would all happen posthumously, or they say, we're dating the plays all wrong, or they'll say, you know, we, we have no absolute proof that the Earl of Oxford died when, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. You do that, and you sink your own case. In the Orson, the first volume of the Orson Welles biography, which is mostly about his stage work as a really young man, um, I'm, I'm just nearing the end of it where it, it's coming up to his um, embarking on Citizen Kane when he was 25, but in his early 20s, he was really celebrated for a very abridged performance production that he directed of Julius Caesar, um, in which he played Brutus, and one of the things that was so divisive among his critics, for which he was either wildly praised or, or really condemned, is that he uh, he cut the play down to about an hour and a half. And yeah. um, it seems well, it seems like Simon Callow's verdict is that it's one of the one of the best abridgments of Shakespeare of, of that particular play, at least that's ever been done. Um, is that is that a common practice in, in in productions of Shakespeare that they could cut it down to almost a fifth? It was enormously common in Shakespeare's own day. Oh, really? Enormously so. That's why, why uh, Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet so completely mystified me. <laughs> just, it angered me, and it disappointed me, but it also utterly confused me, because this guy has theater and movies in his bones, and it, the, the, all of that understanding completely fled from Hamlet. So, so we get, I don't even remember what his Hamlet was, something like five hours long? Four and Every a half, yeah. I liked it. I liked it. Utterly, oh, please. Oh. I really did. Oh, <laughs> you can't be serious. Promise, I really enjoyed it. We see the crime. We see the crime in oh, a flashback. Yeah. <laughs> what on earth is that? We see it in a flashback. Movie audiences have been trained to think if they see something in a flashback, it must be true. Mm. What does that do to the play? <laughs> so. I may or may not have been muttering these things when I saw it in the theater. <laughs> <laughs>
actually, uh, <laughs> I, one of the, I forget what number. It was like 170-something on the list. Um, I'm up to 195 was uh, Laurence Olivier's Hamlet from, I think, 1944 or 45. And um, the one of the things that's that totally took me by surprise is that the first half of that movie is... Um, What's the what's the name of of the playhouse in which Shakespeare performed his Shakespeare's work was originally performed? The Globe. Yes, that the first half of the movie isn't really so much about the play. It's not really an adaptation of the play so much as it is a portrait of what it was like to sit in the Globe in the year 1600 and watch one of the early productions of Henry V, and you see the rain coming in through the skylight, and the actors scurrying around backstage, and you see the flourishes that they volunteer onto the script. Have you, had you ever seen it before? No, this is my first time. And have you ever seen Branagh's Henry V? No. No? Is, is that one good? Oh, 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 boy, are you in for a treat. <laughs> oh, yeah? Is it also a four hours? No, no. It's it it it, 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 has, it and his Much Ado About Nothing only increase the mystery for me of his Hamlet. Because they're both brilliant, utterly brilliant. I I went into his Henry V thinking, all right, well, uh, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. The very best you could possibly do here would be the second best Henry V movie I've ever seen, and I was it was by far the best. Really? Num- oh, it was just incredible. There's nothing wrong with it at all. It's just beautiful. My dad start- was, my dad was loving his Poirot in uh, the his most recent adaptation of uh, Orient Express. Uh, what, he thought that the movie was not as good, but he liked Brana as Poirot. Did you see it? I did see it. Did you like yeah. it? No. No, no he, it's got awful. He, even <laughs> I'm not has... just saying it because I love the original movie. Right. I, I, I did not... If, if that character that Kenneth Branagh was playing was Poirot, then Poirot could sue. <laughs> I didn't see anything of Hercule Poirot in, in what Kenneth Branagh did. And I know that, that Branagh loves the books, so I, again, don't know what he was thinking. I have no idea what he was thinking. And the new biography of Agatha Christie is so good. Is it out yet? Uh, no, it comes out in March, and it's it's just so good. It's it's such a book. Such a good book. She, she wrote about 500 novels? She wrote a lot, yeah. I, I wonder what would the biography of, of such a workaholic be like? Would there be much action? Would there be much insight? Because I imagine she just spent so much time alone in a room writing. Um, was she obsessive? I, I imagine being so prolific, she couldn't have labored too much over every manuscript. No. <laughs> no. But if when you get to that point, you know, you do have time to live a life, because it, the only way you can get to that point is to make it a pure product of discipline. So... Right, you're not having adventures between 10 in the morning and 4.30 at night. But after that, you are. You, it's not like you're working late into the night, because you, by the time excuse me, by the time you get to that point, procrastination is, it isn't even on the card. It's just a fan. It never happens. So, you know, well, like, for instance, uh, William Styron, to use a, you know, a more contemporary example, had no shortage of adventures. You could be, his his biography is full, and he wrote every day all day. Uh, same thing with John O'Hara and a bunch of other people. Agatha Christie sat down to work, did her work, and then put it completely out of her mind, and went and had adventures. <laughs> and of course, there's the there's, there's that that famous period where she just disappeared, <coughs> and the biographers 
are drawn to that, of course. <laughs> they all want to have their own theories as to what happened and why. But this book, I, it's just, mm, I, I will be recommending it. Um, I, I was surprised by uh, I was surprised by how strongly you were endorsing the biography of Bram Stoker. Um, not not surprised that you would take to it. Obviously, I know Dracula is one of, if not your favorite novel. Um, but uh, I didn't think he he didn't write very much after Dracula, did he? I know there are, there are several novels under his name, but and that Dracula is really the only one for which he's remembered. But he wasn't like prolific, was he? Well, it depends on what you mean by prolific. He wrote his whole life. But the, 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 that recent biography was a lot more than just his, something in the blood was a lot more than just his writing. Groundbreaking. <laughs> Groundbreaking. What was, it, what was it so revealing about it? Well, I, the, the author has a thesis to put forward about Bram Stoker. And I, it's not, it's a thesis that I've encountered before, but never so fully articulated about his sexuality. Oh. Uh, that I just found the whole thing fascinating. Just loved it. I mean, there's there's that kind of biography, right? It, it, you don't get it very often, but every once in a while you'll get a biography that means to upset the table, and I like that. Provided there's something to it, I like that. But you don't see a lot of it anymore. Usually the, the biographies come out now are very dutiful. Do you think that's a manifestation of fear on this generation of biographers' part that they don't want yeah. to upset the table? Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, you'll see it, you'll see it more often in biographies where there's no possibility that you are needing to be indebted to anybody. But if you're, if you're writing a biography of somebody who has a living archive, you know, under somebody's bed, and you need to carry favor with that person in order to get at that archive, you need to show them drafts, you need to show them longer drafts. <laughs> so the only way that you could possibly surprise such a person and get all of those documents and still write a paradigm-shifting book would be to write two books and just show them. Although I, I, there are a couple of examples in the last ten years where the key, the keeper of a key family archive insisted on right of refusal, on the right to veto the whole project. Oh wow! Utterly ridiculous. But but it, you know later ones, or earlier figures where you're not worried about that, that you see it more often. I was kind of hoping that the new book on President Carter's presidency would be that, and it wasn't. It's tremendously good. It, all future people writing about the Carter administration will have to refer to it, but... It, in the past couple of years, I've really been marveling at the, just the like the figure, and I'm sure it's sort of a caricature in my head of, of the very dutiful biographer, who, or just someone who, who locks themselves in a library to to tell the story of a single person's life. And uh, I... Yeah, there's... Uh, I'm... I'm I'm hearing what you're saying. <laughs> I'm deeply. Oh, you're doing this, yeah. Because I'm doing it right now. Yes, <laughs> I'm, I'm doing it myself in all of 2018. Can you Hopefully, longer than that. But I'm I'm doing it myself. I'm submersing myself in a life. Can, uh, can you give an idea? I, I obviously know what you're talking about, but for the sake of the podcast, could you talk about what you're doing? Oh, I'm doing I'm doing an, an enormous uh, biography of President William Howard Taft. <laughs> I, I'm aiming at. Uh, somewhere between 800 and 900 pages, I want it to be uh, accessible to the general reader. But I want it to be a life and time, so it's not going to be short. <laughs> it's going to be going to be the whole thing. <laughs> and that, that involves a lot of minutia. You have to spend a lot of time with the person. And I'm only just gearing up. I'm still in the part of his life that doesn't even have 
comparatively much in the way of document of documentary evidence. Boy, oh boy, it's not the same thing as writing fiction. You write ten pages on a Monday, and they've all got to be scrapped by Wednesday. And not because you're having, you know, lonely poet in a garret second thought, but because the facts are shifted under your feet. You need to rewrite what you wrote. I was listening, I was re- reading an interview with the biographer Blake Bailey, who uh, has done some massive, massive biographies of uh, 20th century American literary figures, and he said he was alluding to something similar like that, the, the facts change under your feet, and so he said that his writing process is to sort of saturate himself in the research for two or three years, and then in the, in the last year, he can pretty much say with certainty, today I'm, I'm writing seven pages about this episode. Right, and I should probably do that. Right. I've heard a variation of that. From They start out doing what I'm doing, and what I'm doing is almost certainly the thing. And then they move to just index cards and cork boards mm-hmm. <laughs> and stuff like that. Little bits, vignettes, quotes, masks and masks of quotes. But they don't actually try to write anything until the research is done. I'm just I'm jumping the gun a little because I want this done in a year. Maybe that's unrealistic. Maybe that, that's the problem. Uh, I, I had a doctor for a while, um, he was a therapist when I was in high school, and um, we would talk about, I, I didn't read many biographies, but but at the time I was finding consistently, and it's still the case, that I'm, I'm, I always find the final chapters the most interesting to see how they lived on their laurels, how they lived with their in the shadow of their own accomplishments, whereas he was always saying that his favorite chapters were the first few. He was far more interested always in their childhood and adolescence. Um, for obvious reasons, I guess, given his profession. He, but um, I've always been way more interested in the ending, in, in the, the final years, the twilight years. I don't know why. And I, actually, as I'm reading these Orson Welles books, um, well, book, I'm still in the first one, um, I'm kind of itching. I, I, I feel kind of dutiful about it. What I'm most compelled by, what I'm most eager to read, is what was going through Orson Welles' mind when he was washed up um, and couldn't get anything off the ground, couldn't get funding for anything, um, was living in the at the age of 68, 69, in the specter of what he'd accomplished at the age of 25. Yeah, yeah, the famous quote about him there, but for the grace of God goes God. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, and entirely true. The thing I love about Taft is that I'm not going to have to worry about that because he didn't rest on his laurels. He didn't rest on the biggest laurels in the world, the laurels that everyone else rests on except John Quincy Adams. He didn't rest on the laurels of being president. And that that's awesome. That's an awesome feeling to know that, you know, I mean, most presidential biographies you get to the end of the administration, and God, look at the tedium. You've got to go on from there. Not everybody's nice enough like FDR to just croak. Imagine what Jimmy Carter's Life and Times biographer is going to have to do. Yeah. Not, I mean, this, this book that I, that I mentioned earlier is a history of his time in the White House. Right. But imagine a, a soup to nuts biography. <laughs> what a nightmare that would be. The presidency will be over at the halfway point. At the halfway point, yeah. Um, I, I, I've only but heard the, it... the keepers of the archives... The, the Carter family, everyone involved, including the president himself, whom you're going to want to interview extensively, they're not going to want you to say that. Right. They're going to say all of these these later projects are every bit as important or more so. <laughs> Carter has actually said that on a number of occasions, that his work after the presidency has been more important than his work in the presidency. And, you know, that's great if you've got to get yourself out of bed in the morning, but you're not going to be able to convince anybody who's reading your book that what you're doing on a charity board is more important than what you did with nuclear codes. <laughs> but but Taft came back. He had he had a third act, and that's awesome. I, I I mean the Supreme Court is 
fun to write about in its own right. <laughs> but uh, but for that to be a final act, and for it not to be a sinecure, that's the most amazing thing about it. Is that it, it wasn't he wasn't just there for show, or if he was, he quickly disabused people of that notion. Wait, I'm sorry. To ask this. What was that word, sinecure? Yeah, yeah. It, if you ordinarily, if you if you'd put an ex president of the United States on the Supreme Court, you'd expect him to just sit there and buff his nails. Right. Uh, Taft didn't do that. Didn't have it in him to do that. Just went straight to work. How old was he when he when he left the White House? Oh God. Sixties. Probably early sixties. I'm terrible with that sort of thing. I'm terrible. Um, with something that's been that's been. Um, I've always found interesting, and I, I, I imagine Robert Caro is going to do it really well. Although I've only ever heard it portrayed <laughs> anecdotally from um, Doris Kearns Goodwin, is his, his, uh, um, Lyndon Johnson's final years with long hair, sitting on his rocking chair, being haunted by LBJ, LBJ. How many kids did you kill today? Um, yeah, yeah, I agree. It'll be an evocative scene when somebody writes it. <laughs> oh right, you maintain that Caro is not going to make it. <laughs> Robert Caro. At his last birthday, was 99 years old. He weighs 100 pounds. He doesn't breathe on his own. And though most of his organs have shut down, he is certainly not going to finish his biography of LBJ. <laughs> so he's never going to write that scene. He'll he'll dedicate it to somebody else. Somebody will get that job. <laughs> well, actually, I've heard that in his contract, no one is to finish it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's great. <laughs> Do you think that's that that the publisher would respect that? No, I don't know. They're such an honorable group. <laughs> I don't. I don't myself find that that you know long-haired rocking chair hour as compelling as as you do. I, it's a paragraph. It would probably be a huge part of whatever book ends up on the subject, but it shouldn't be. Uh, but then again, we might have different opinions. Probably at that point. That seems to happen. Um, well, you, although you do tend to frustrate me with how you tend to be right about these things. Uh, you were really the only person I knew who was resolutely saying that Trump would win. Uh, you he were. Have a chance he wouldn't. Huh? I didn't just say he would that he would likely win. I said there's no chance he'll lose. Yeah. And people were saying, how can you possibly say that? The guy is a cartoon. You were also telling me from the beginning that Mark D. Danielewski's book, The Familiar, which I so which I so came to love, that twenty seven volume novel would be cancelled long before it had a chance to even, you know, pick up steam. It looks like you're right. It's the publisher has said gracefully it's on pause. It's an, it was an absurd proposition from the beginning. It was a just patently absurd proposition from the beginning. So why anybody ever bankrolled him, I don't know. Maybe just to keep him happy? even from moving to another house. But absurd propositions don't stay. I was just recently on McSweeney's website reading an oral history uh, chronicling the production of William T. Volman's 3,500-page uh, Rising Up and Rising Down, his history of violence. And um, Dave Eggers, because apparently Dave Eggers heard from Volman's agent or heard at a party that uh, no publisher would take Volman's book unless he reduced it to, like, a third... Um, if that, and um, Dave Eggers offered to publish it sight unseen. Well, yes, because he's a literary visionary. You, if you're wondering whether or not he's a literary visionary, just check out his suit. He bought those patches specifically. He's an august literary figure. I don't know if you could combine Jesus and Maxwell Perkins. He might. <laughs> he might. 
for that. He might. He might settle for that. But as you were saying, <laughs> well, <laughs> you read on McSweeney, that, that new literary salon. <laughs> well, you, you were saying that uh, you know, um, Pantheon's choice to go forward with uh, Mark Danielewski's The Familiar, this ridiculously long novel, which I very much like, um, it, it was a, a reckless, idiotic publishing decision, but wouldn't you, if you were... I, I, are you glad that McSweeney's went on such a ridiculous venture with Volman's 3,500-page book, which you did enjoy, ultimately, right? I'm torn. <laughs> I'm torn. For, first of all, they're not comparable, right? Yeah, I know, because I know. what Dan Lucy was proposing was a work that would have lasted until the 25th. He was proposing to a publisher that they that they bankrolled, what he was essentially telling them was, every book I'm going to write until I die, at the age the actuarial table says I will die. <laughs> Whereas Volman produces. He doesn't make pie-in-the-sky plans. He produces. He, so he, tell, he goes to his publisher and says, I'm planning on a 1,500-page historical novel about an obscure incident in the American Indian Wars. Where's my contract? They don't hesitate to do it because they know that he'll produce it. And then he did, and it got reviewed everywhere. So, so it's not the same thing at all. He, he wasn't saying, you know, finance me for the rest of my life, no matter what twists or turns I take. <laughs> I don't know. He's a, he's a dangerous commodity. Volume 10 of The Familiar. What if Daniel Lucy decided that he wanted to make Volume 10 of The Familiar entirely musical score? Well, okay, apart from Daniel Lesky, Volman is... is a volatile figure. I, for his new book, the one that you recently received um, the galleys for, his book on the environment, about fracking, I think the first volume is about fracking, he went to, um, what's the irradiated, is there a name for the irradiated zone in Japan? Oh, there's probably a name for it. I don't know what it yeah. is. Well, but he visited it, and um, and he was saying, in his normal way, well, I figured... If I'm going to get cancer, I may as well do it in the service of literature. And he does shit like that all the time. He goes to a meth lab. I think that's the reason he doesn't have eyebrows. He was like... <laughs> no, seriously. But he delivered the manuscript. Yes. And he's not asking his publisher to finance 20 manuscripts. That's true. Do you uh, think he'll get the Nobel at some point? No. Really? No, not a chance. <laughs> no. No, not a chance. Uh, I could be wrong. But would you have, uh, I know you were really appalled by Bob Dylan winning the uh, Nobel in literature. Would you have predicted it? Did you, as angry as you were, were you surprised? No, I was surprised, yeah. I wouldn't have yeah. predicted it in a million years. I know that the, the Nobel, the current committee, the, I should say current, the people who are behind the scenes of the committee for a long time now are absolutely addicted to grabbing headlines. They have Trumpitis. They're absolutely addicted to it. Uh but I never thought that they would go that far. No, <laughs> no. I, I, I knew that they were perfectly willing, in fact, that they got off on having most of the literary world scrambling to go to Google their the winner. The most obscure, yeah. Yeah, uh, but squandering the value of the prize for that effect, I had no idea. I had no idea they would do that. Couldn't believe it when it happened. It was, I was in a daze for a whole day because there isn't any more a Nobel Prize in literature now. Because Dylan won it. So it's meaningless. Who cares who wins it? Who, who cares who wins it one year? Who cares who wins it the next year? You gave a, a really impassioned, uh, I don't want to say speech. I don't know. You just made a, a very serious video once about um, booktubers who do paid 
sponsored videos wherein yeah. the, the the publisher pays you to review a book and they 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 put all these emphatic footnotes of like it's your own opinion we're not yeah. we're not buying your opinion but you gave a really serious vid, um sermon let's say about you sell your integ- you, you sell your integrity once you, you it was i remember the way you put it um, that sermon didn't take i i opened a video just this morning uh from a booktuber that i used to like and the first words out of her mouth were you know this, this is paid for by disney and i stopped i didn't watch the whole thing i, I stopped right then because you know if i want to watch a commercial for disney i'll watch it at the beginning of a movie i'm not i'm not gonna i don't want to see it parading as your opinion of something <laughs> I uh, I had no idea. I, I still don't know what to make of the responses that I got to that to that video. <laughs> so I still don't know people saying, you know, well, it's all it's all right for you, but some of us want to make money off booktube. Like that's any kind of an answer to what I was saying. <laughs> I, I guess not. I guess I guess people don't get it. Uh, but you, why did that come up? Why is that? Well, yeah. Why did what did we just discuss that that came up about someone selling their opinion? The Nobel giving away there. Oh, uh, yeah, that you can do it once, and then you can only it once, and, and they've done it now. So, what difference does it make? Who wins it from now on? All right, <laughs> all right, my dudes. I've been talking with Steve Donahue, who I will be speaking with again very, very soon. And thanks for listening. Bye.